That is the struggle that we face this time of year. No doubt about it is making sure that the Christmas doesn't go plastic, doesn't go fake. I'm old enough to remember, and this will only apply to a few people, nor I understand that, but I'm old enough to remember the big debate when, when these trees came out. The, it was a big deal in my family uh, whether we, we were going to get an artificial tree. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth on one of the children in our family. I'm not going to say which one, but I am an only child. And the, <laughs> they held off for a couple of years. And finally, uh, they, they went ahead and did this. And, and actually, I, I've actually fell in love with the tree uh, over a while. But man, it was a big deal to, to go corporate or whatever we were doing at that time to, to get this, this tree that was uh, an artificial tree. Uh, and our always green tree, I think my parents like to call it, or whatever it was, but with no needles that fall off or whatever. But I'm thinking no needles at all, at all on this thing. And that was a, that was a huge deal, was to think about how do you, you know, Christmas just seems to be getting weirder and weirder. I want you, I want to do something for a little while here. Uh, probably half of the message I want to do in an introduction. So <laughs> uh, I know some of you who grew up in different traditions my introduction will be longer than most of the sermons you, you're used to listening to. Uh, but th- this is going to be a little bit long. So just, just hang with me for a minute. But it's kind of an interesting little thing. And I actually this week was so intrigued by this, uh, I decided to spend this amount of time doing it because I, I hope it will for you too. I'd like you just for a little while to think about what it would be like to be from another culture or, or perhaps a, uh, a, another, another planet Say, uh, say Mars. I will come and get you. Okay, but the, the, uh, the Martian here. Uh, and, and just think what it would be like to know nothing about our culture. Don't understand the culture at all. And all of a sudden you come in and you observe Christmas. I mean, seriously. This is an amazing phenomenon we have in our culture where you come and you observe this thing. or you, you know, just How do you put it all together? And, and so um, it is amazing to me, I did a little research on it this week, and to, to get to the whole concept of what does Christmas actually mean? What is it, what's going on in this whole phenomenon we call Christmas, right? And so it, I did a little research on this this week, and I encourage you, if you want to follow up on this study, I, I looked at a study. The study is by Elizabeth uh, C. Hirschman, she's from Rutgers, and Priscilla A. LaBarbera. Uh, who is from, who was from, she's deceased now, New York University. And there are, the, the interesting thing, from a sociological point of view, there are only two studies you can find. One is written in the 50s. They're going to quote this in just a second. I'll let you see it. And this one's written in 1989. I could not find anything else. If you can, you're probably better at the, the Al Gore invented internet than I am, but I could not find anything else. This was it. And looking at, they tried to, to go at this from the angle of saying... What if you knew nothing about it? Let's try to explain it. So they looked at it from a sociological point of view. I believe they were hired by, <laughs> surprise, surprise, companies to figure out Christmas. Uh, but, but there was no influence on the, on the uh, actual results. And there's what they say in the very beginning. They said, despite the fact that uh, Christmas is the most important consumer festival in the United States, one which mobilizes almost the entire population for several weeks, and takes precedence over ordinary forms of work and leisure. And they're going to quote this guy, Kaplow, throughout the study. He's the one that did this other. Uh, there was one done, I guess it's 1984, but there's one done previous than that um, that was kind of the big one in the 50s. It has received almost no attention in the consumer behavior literature or indeed in the social sciences generally. And I'm going to quote this guy again, and he's going to say this. An ethnographer, that's someone who would come into a culture that you know nothing about, and you try to understand what, what's happening in that ethnic culture, that's where the phrase comes from, who discovered so important a ritual in some exotic culture might be tempted to make it the centerpiece of his cultural description. It is remarkable that social scientists have given so little attention to the conspicuous cluster of symbolic and practical acts. So they do this study saying, what if we knew nothing, we're trying to explain this to somebody, what would it be like? And I found it absolutely fascinating, and I want to walk you through some of their findings. In this, they come up with some rules. The first one is the tree rule. Married couples with children of any age should put up Christmas trees in their homes. This is a 
social norm. Okay? If you're married and you have a kid, you should put up a Christmas tree. That is just, you're, you're socially shunned from everybody else if you don't do this. If you're a bunch of dudes, a little bit of garland on the Xbox is fine. But if you have little kids, little kids, you got to put up a tree. That's the tree rule. Then they call it the gathering rule. Okay? In other words, there is going to be gifts, but there's a gatheringness to it. Christmas gifts should be distributed at gatherings where every person gives and receives at least a gift. Okay? So that's what takes place there. The dinner rule. Family gatherings at which gifts are distributed include a traditional Christmas dinner, which includes... Now, there's really only one option here, or there's, there's the only point of option is number one. Turkey or ham? How many people are turkey people in here for Christmas? How many people are ham people for Christmas? Yeah, that's the right answer. So, um, so <laughs> uh, you have ham, dressing, white potatoes, preferably mashed. Not preferably mashed, mashed. That's why you call it Christmas. The, the ancient Latin for Christmas is mashed. That's what it means. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Four, sweet potatoes in some form. Not some form. Not some form. It's got a little mushrooms on it. You know what I'm saying? Little mushrooms. Not mushrooms. Wow. Sorry. Marshmallows. Marshmallows. Thank you. I'll tell you guys this. I didn't tell first services. Um, I, just, I grew up in a Norwegian home. Ludafiskan left to anybody? Yeah. I remember one year, um, Ludafiskan left tonight. <laughs> no lie. Uh, it's a Christmas Eve. I'm in high school. I'm probably like a junior in high school. And we all sat there. We're eating this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, it, it hit every one of us at the same time. Why do we eat this? <laughs> Anyone? Cod soaked in lye. And it, we've never had it since. That moment was the last moment Ludafisk has ever set foot in our house. Uh, it just, yeah, anyway. So, anyway. Um, preferably mashed. Sweet potatoes, some form. Uh, not some, but the thing. Cranberry sauce. Now, it's optional if you have turkey, but, you know, not if you have ham, then you don't need it. Salad. Green beans. You can have something green. Baked beans or bean salad. And then pumpkin pie or other pies. That's what, this is what you do. You have the meal. You don't just have grilled cheese. No, you don't just have grilled cheese. You have the meal, right? There's the rules. There's rules involved with this. Again, if you know nothing about this, this is a start to helping you to understand what's going on for you. Now, the way that they conducted this study was they asked one question to a variety of people. If you want to go and read the study, you can go get the PowerPoint later on. Just type in the phrase, uh, uh, what does Christmas mean or the meaning of Christmas? And it'll be like the second or third thing that comes up. It's a very popular study. Uh, that so, from a sociological standpoint. Again, it's by, uh, I can't read my small, uh, Elizabeth and Priscilla. So I can't read this small already. La Barbara is one of them. And, but anyway, the, the, uh, it, it's very fascinating. You can read it on your own. But they asked one question, and they got essay answers. So that's difficult to do to figure out. Uh, there wasn't any multiple choice. So they asked one question. To, they explained their, their sample size and who they took and all that. It's a, it's, a, it's a variety of people, and they ask them one question. The question is simply this. What does Christmas mean to you? That's what they ask. And they got all these essay answers. And what they did is they... Uh, that's funny. The, <laughs> the, uh, it was Christmas. I appreciate that, though. That was nice. The, um, uh, I was I totally... Man, that usually doesn't do that to me, but it just totally did. No problem. Don't worry about it. Is that a Packer? Oh, now we got problems. <laughs> Cell phone, no big deal. Two of you together. Hmm. Hi, I'm Steve. Let's start over. What? Thank you. Thank you. Keep focus, focus. The essays, and they, they broke them down, and they tried to synthesize them. And this, I think this is genius. This, to me, was what made this uh, so fascinating, was... Uh, how they came across and how they synthesized these into five things. And this is why I think it makes Christmas so complicated for us to explain to others as well as to understand ourselves at times 
Because you can get lost in these five things. Here's the five things. Some will come as no, none of them will come as a surprise. But all together, when you mix them up together, it's really interesting. Number one, there's the, there's the religious part of it, right? That, it's a secular study, so this is the way they say it. They call it formal um, uh, sacredness to it. Birth of Jesus, all right? Second thing they found is there's interpersonal relationships or communalisms. You come together as a family, all right? It's not, again, not unique to Christmas, but we're going to see in just a minute that that when you add these other dimensions, holy smokes, it becomes very unique. There's secular materialism, there's cynicism, and consumerism. And I know it seems like, whoa, that's, aren't those opposite one another? When I get to explaining to you what that looks like, you'll see why that's all on one line. It all fits together on one line. So that's another piece to the puzzle. Another piece is there's gift giving, all right, major piece to the puzzle. And then lastly, there's sensuality and hedonism. Just before you start going like, whoa, what does that mean? Uh, why would you have that at Christmas? It means there's a lot of senses involved and there's pleasure, food and smells and Christmas cookies and da-da-da-da-da. That's what they're talking about when they say sensuality and hedonism. Hedonism means pleasure. So, but that's the idea, right? The whole concept here of what's going through it. Now, if you look at those five things, it is a unique holiday. It is a, it is a very different holiday. And again, I want you to try to step out of it just for a minute. I know you go, I, I get Christmas. And I want you to step out of it as, as if, and I'm assuming most of you have not been to China, but if you are tra- trying to understand the cultural phenomenon that is Chinese New Year. China basically shuts down for like 11 months for Chinese New Year. <laughs> I mean, it just shuts down. I remember I ordered a pool table from China. It was, it was you could make it however you wanted it. It was cheaper to, it was actually cost equal amounts to buy the pool table and to ship it was equal. But it still was like half the cost of what you could have got one here in the States. And so being the international person that I am, Wanting to inform the global economy, I bought one from China. And I placed the order in September. And it takes about six weeks to build the table. And then everything stopped until about February. So, I mean, it was like, okay. Now, that might be a little bit on steroids. But just try to think about what it would be like to step into our culture and understand Christmas. First of all, it is the birth of Jesus. So it's, it's a national birthday. We have other ones like that. From a non-religious standpoint, we have President's Day, uh, we have Martin Luther King Day, we remember famous people's birthdays, okay? So other than getting a day off, nothing more happens than that. It's a little bit more here in that this is a very significant person in our faith. And so this, if you just had number one, it would be similar as a day to like Good Friday. That's a very significant day in the Christian calendar, and yet there's none of the other real elements involved. You know, we don't, we don't really gather. We don't share gifts. We don't do anything like that. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a, uh, a one-time deal, and there's, there's things that go along with it. It'd be a religious holiday, so to speak. Now, you add to it number two, which is the, the uh, relationships with the family. Now you're getting close to what we call Easter. You know, what happens on Easter normally is you have family gathering. You're normally together. Uh, not Maybe certainly not to the regularity of Christmas, but, you know, you, you spend more time together, and it is a religious holiday. Now you get complicated when you start adding the other things. If you know math, and I know some of you just had a, a serious freak-out moment when I said math, but you know when you start adding variables to things, it gets exceedingly more complicated. So instead of one equation with one unknown, just the religious festival, we go to two, and ultimately when we add all of them, you get to five. You get to five equations and five unknowns, and it gets very, very complicated very quickly. And that's what's happening here. This thing becomes an absolute mess of what's happening because there's five different forces hitting you at one time. The other ones here are this whole concept of commercialism and it's, and I would say, as a result, it's uh, uh, offshoots, which are uh, materialism and um, cynicism. And then that, that, of course, comes from the whole gift-giving concept and then that, of course, all the different smells and bells and wonderful things about Christmas that go with it. Now, so, with that said, I want to share with you some of the responses that they shared. I think these are fascinating. Average people, just ask them the question, what does Christmas mean to you? And I want to list them in the way that they did uh, in all five of those, those bad boys. So, for instance, I want to start with the, the formal sacred 
uh, nest to it or the religious aspect. I don't like the word religion, but you get where they're coming from. From their perspective, this is what they call it. So here's what they said. I just want to read these through. They go pretty quick. Um, There's also the religious aspect of Christmas, even though I am not a real religious man. That is, I don't go to church every Sunday. On Christmas Eve, it is like I change personality. I feel closer to God, and usually I go to church. This may be the result of the atmosphere of love and serenity that the family experiences. Another person says, It is the birthday of Jesus Christ, and in the way in which we show our love, and the way in which we show our love for one another is through the presentation of gifts to the special people in our lives. It is also a time to reflect upon the love God has for us by giving us a precious gift, His Son, Jesus. Not a bad answer. Uh, Here's a person who feels guilty. I go to Mass on Christmas. It gives me a chance to thank God for all that I have. Sometimes I feel like a hypocrite because I don't go every week like I should. Okay, so there's that concept. That is definitely prevalent in all of the answers, or many of the answers that were given there. Number two, the issue of family. Now, I found in, in, in seeking this, uh, <laughs> I, I thought this was a very interesting little... <laughs> you can't read it in the back there. It says, save more liquors. And then the little sign says, holiday means family. On an unrelated note, we sell liquor. Yeah, that's what it says. So, so uh, <laughs> yeah. So here, here's what people think about their families. Christmas is the season when we remember that love is the greatest thing in the world. We take time to see friends and loved ones, to reaffirm the love we share with them, and to celebrate the holiday with them. That sounds almost fun. Uh, it says an excuse for people to get together and make each other happy. I like this one. I like this one. I love walking down the street and smiling at people I don't know and have them smile back simply because they feel Christmas inside. Now, that works in the Midwest. I tried that in Boston. And just, you just, anybody, nobody been out East Coast, Boston area? You know what I'm talking about? You go to somebody, hi, Merry Christmas. And they look at you like, do I know you? Well, of course you don't. I just said hi. But you will if you say hi back. It's a very small relationship, but we'll just start it. No. I don't think they have any Christmas inside them is what I think. <laughs> Christmas is the time when everybody comes home. And uh, that is, you know, it's true for us this year. Our, our boys are home this year from college, and so that makes, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So you get family around you. I'm going to talk about that next week. The myth of the perfect family <laughs> at Christmas. Because uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not in one. And uh, I know how could, you're thinking, how can that possibly be? It's the other people in my family, I'll be honest. <laughs> that's not funny. I don't know why they're laughing. Uh, no, but it, it, we're all whacked, okay? And so we all come together, and... You know, you got five whacked people in the family, and maybe you got a crazy uncle or that whole kind of thing, whatever. And, uh, but I remember Christmas being a very special time. Being an only child, my uncle would come, who was like a big kid, and we'd have the greatest time um, together, and that was a lot of fun. Now, third thing talks about in this is the secular materialism, cynicism, and commercialism. If you remember from Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown in the Christmas, uh, you probably all seen it, that he goes through and he just bums out uh, because of all the commercialism and the whole thing. And, and uh, even as Snoopy gets into it, the dog is all of Everybody's just about commercialism, materialism. They've lost the meaning. He goes out and gets this tree. It's this horrible little tree. And he, he puts the one ornament on it and it dies. And he says, I've ruined Christmas in the only Charlie Brown way. And, you know, that kind of a deal. In an ironic note, the Charlie Brown tree is supposed to be the the icon of anti-commercialism, right? And I just saw it now. It's marketed. You can buy one. It's kind of ironic. Actually, somebody for service came to me and said, I just bought one. I feel bad now. I said, no, no. It's, it's great. Whatever, you know, but I'm just, it's, it is a bit ironic that you can purchase this. Anyway, um, so, and it's fine. It's fine. You know, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm just, yeah, whatever. So, uh, this is what people have said. And it's interesting, this whole concept of consumerism or materialism and the, what it brings about with people is not positive. I don't, matter of fact, I don't think in any of these, and I'm, 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 this is my topic today that I want to talk about, it's consumerism. Uh, the, one of the struggles I have with Christmas is consumerism. Is, uh, but I, I don't think anybody speaks positively of this. Oh, it's great. Look at what they say. Looking around at today's commercialized Christmas makes me sadder. 
it tells me that most people have missed out on the best part of Christmas. My daughter thinks Christmas is another day to receive gifts and cannot understand why. If it's Christ's birthday, everyone else is getting a gift. Hmm, smart little girl. I must admit that I find the Christmas season to be too commercial and sometimes a burden of empty obligation. These are just people being brutally honest with their, what they think of Christmas. The TV programs concentrate mostly on Santa Claus, not on Christ. I've become increasingly tense over how much money we spend and over the requirement that I provide an enormous feast. It is sad that so much regard is placed on material things instead of love and brotherhood. It is a sly idol that steals the true meaning of Christmas. It's interesting. I get up early and with cash and credit cards in hand go about the difficult and dirty task of spreading Christmas cheer. (laughs) Wow. The overall, level, uh, the overall level of collective neurosis rises as do guilt, false expectation, and disappointment. Wow, that's honest. A season to worship credit cards, one person said. Another one said, Christmas shopping is like going to war. So, as you look at that whole issue of consumerism, you can see. It brings about within people a lot of cynicism. Now, where does that come from? Obviously, it comes from the whole gift-giving thing. Here's what people said about that. To show, and there's both positive and negative here. People feel a little bit about this tradition, both positive and negative. To show people through presence that you care about them. That can be good or bad right there. Christmas gives me a chance to give presents to those I enjoy. Everybody else gets a lump of coal, I guess, or whatever. This person is the only brutally honest person in the group. Uh, I look under the tree to see if there are any gifts with my name on them, right? <laughs> Christmas is the purely material sense. In the purely material sense, it's coming to me in a real catch-22. You know what that phrase means? It's you do this, but it ends up giving an unintended consequence of something that you didn't intend. Every year, I attempt to outdo last year's performance by buying more lavish or original presents while I try to lower my expectations for what I will receive in return. Wow, I try to do better and make that less. Woo, that's breaking real honest people. We give presents to each other to represent the gladness and celebration of Christ's birth. person says this, as I grow older, Christmas became, uh, has become more or less and less a religious ceremony than a market for consumption. And lastly, as I wrap gifts, I think of the person who's going to receive them and I become filled with pleasure. So it's, it's positive and negative on, the, on this whole thing. In this study, they look at this as you, if you're from Mars and you're trying to understand Christmas, the last element is just plain old-fashioned good hedonism, sensuality, right? And enjoying these, these things. Here's what happened. Delicious pumpkin and minced meat pies. I found out first service, I don't even know this. Minced meat contains no meat. What does minced meat actually have in it? Uh, raisins. Raisins ain't meat. I actually got excited, like, I want a minced meat. What is that, like a big old hunk of salami or something? Maybe a little sausage or... No, it's raisins. Delicious pumpkin and raisin pies. That should not say minced meat. Anyway, colorful Christmas cookies, Jesus' birthday cakes, hams and salads are proudly presented after hours of preparation. Much delicious food that mom prepares just for the occasion. So this brings joy to them. You don't hear from mom, but you hear from this person. Hanging stockings, putting Rudolph on the lawn. I hope they're referring to the reindeer and not like the third child named Rudolph. But, um, and hanging mistletoe in the doorway. Right? Uh, the scent of spices. This year I, uh, I did it. I was walking out after I got the tree and there was those scented cones. The whole store kind of smells like those. You go, oh, that's great. Then you put it in your house and it's like, <coughs> can't even see the kitchen from here, you know. Had to sit outside for a while, but now they're, now they're good. They, they're a little gagging at first. Bright, twinkling lights. So you get all these, you know, you got the, we got them right here too. Lights of fun. Festive decorations. Children march on multicolored snow from, I'm not sure what. <laughs> not sure what that means. 
That's a good. I know, I know, I know one color you should avoid. I don't know what. Children march on multicolored snow from one house to the next, singing Christmas carols and glancing up to the starlit sky to try to catch a glimpse of Santa and his reindeer. This guy had some time to think about that. That was well written, yeah, right? A roaring fire, right? And smelling the Christmas tree, right? That is great. When you come in, you smell the Christmas tree. When we got the artificial, oh, excuse me, always green Christmas tree, we got the spray thing. So it just spray and then you walk in a, wow, that smells just like an artificial Christmas tree. It's beautiful. <laughs> that's Christmas. If you're from Mars, that's Christmas. If you're from some country that doesn't celebrate Christmas, that's Christmas in our culture. It's a complicated, complicated thing, which is why we're doing this series for four weeks on why I hate Christmas. Because these trappings of Christmas can wipe it out for you. You can get so caught up in the, in the trappings, and I'm, we're talking here about four things that can steal Christmas joy from you. And I wrestle with these every year. I wrestle with them right now. How do you allow these things not to steal your Christmas joy? And last week we talked about uh, that we need, if anybody should be Christmas party animals, it should be us, like the great theologian Prince has said, we're going to party like it's 1999. Now, if that's not your style of music, uh, go a little more uh, classic rock and roll here. And like the Beastie Boys said, you've got to fight for your right to party, right? You need to, you need to fight for this right. If anybody should party at Christmas, it should be Christians. Our Lord and Savior came to earth to save our necks. Party. Amen. I vote yes. There you go. There you go. Okay, now, so what's going to rob us of our party? Thief number one last week was this whole concept of giving the perfect gift, the pressure there that, you, that I, we, we, we honed in on two things. One, I want to people please. It's really important to me that everybody's happy and that if I don't, they don't make them happy, there's something deficient with me. We dealt with that by looking at, at understanding what gifts are. Gifts are for free. I do things for them and, and whatever they, if they receive it well, it's great. If they don't, fine. Gifts are for free. They can return it. It's okay. That's okay. It's a gift for free. They can do what they want. Smash it. Fine. It's a, it's a gift. I need to understand gifts. We looked at Matthew 6 and Matthew 7 about how Jesus describes gifts and what you should do with your acts of righteousness. Do them in secret so that others don't see you. Otherwise, you receive your reward in full. And are you doing this out of fullness? Or are you doing it to get something, really to manipulate other people? And the second thing we looked at was then I have these two things going on within me. And one is that. And the other one's the opposite. Just I'm really selfish. I just want it to be done, just like the video said. I want it to be done. I want everybody not to be crying. And I want to move on. I want to watch football or whatever else is happening on that particular day. And selfishness. And how do I overcome selfishness? How do you do that? And we looked at 2 Corinthians, talked about how uh, we don't live for ourselves, but for others, for him who died for us and was raised again. And we looked at Philippians chapter 2, which talks about uh, Christ emptying himself and coming down. Our attitude should be the same as him. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Why? Because this is what Christ did. And what we're talking about in this series is how do you pull the gospel through all this stuff? How do you do those trappings of Christmas and pull the gospel through and come out on the other side and say, that was great. I didn't get sucked into it all and it was a horrible experience. That's what we're trying to do in this series. And so today I want to talk about thief number two, which is the commercialization of Christmas. I want you to spend a lot to prove you love your family, right? And that's good old, good old consumerism yelling at you. This particular picture here is taken somewhere in, the, in, in Asia. Those are all Asian people. It's hard for you to see that, but from where I'm standing, they're, they're all Asian people. And for some reason, they're covering their eyes or something. I haven't, I saw the image and I thought it was really interesting. Now, it could be South Korea. Could be. So that would explain it. But if it's not South Korea, it's the only Christian area in the Asian culture. Oh yeah, and that one too, whatever you just said. But <laughs> what did you say? What else? might be. I don't know. How would I know? Uh, but it's interesting 
because the concept of Christmas is making its way into what we call Western, westernized nations like Japan without at all the birth of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's like, whoa, that's interesting. So we're doing two, three, four, and five, but we're not really doing number one. Although sushi for Christmas, I could, I'd vote yes on that. That'd be all right with me. But, but you know, some, it, it, it is interesting. So this whole concept is spreading, this commercialization. Now, in order to get after this, um, I want you to think a little bit about this whole idea. Commercialization. Everybody that was surveyed and had something to say about it was negative. Every one of them that we read there said it saddens me or it's just getting too commercial or it's doing all these different things. Everybody said that, right? So you got to stop for a minute and you got to think about what's life like in a free market society. All right, now I'm, this is not a civics class and this most certainly is not, I'm not pushing a certain economic policy upon you. I'm just stating the way it is. We are in a limited God, there's some government involvement, but limited free market system in the United States, which means that the economy is driven by two principles, macroeconomics 101. Just hang with me for a minute. Macroeconomics 101. What are those two principles? Supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. There is stuff because people want the stuff. There isn't stuff because people don't want the stuff. All right? Did, did everybody follow that? Okay. Macroeconomics. Obvious. Supply and demand. That's the way it works. Okay. So as a result, before you start ripping on the commercialism of, of a free market society, you have to look at the other equation and saying, why is there a demand? Why is there a demand? And there certainly is. Let me give you a case study here so you understand what's going on. Case study. Pet rock. Okay? How many people have heard of the pet rock? That's amazing. That is an amazing thing that you've heard of the pet rock. Because the pet rock lasted approximately six months. It's, the concept started by a guy by the name, make sure I get his name right here, um, Gary Dahl. Gary Dahl was in a pub with his friends in April of 1975. They were complaining about their pets. And he made the comment, well, why don't you clowns just go out there and get a pet rock that you could handle? And then he leaned back and said, wait a minute. In an American ingenuity, he started thinking about this. That perhaps would make a great pet stays where you leave it, doesn't soil the floor, don't have to buy a cage, just wonderful things, right? Uh, and so he comes up with the concept of putting together and marketing for Christmas of 1975 the concept of a pet rock. He goes to his local, uh, you know, garden store, whatever, and buys a whole bunch of um, First service, I said the phrase, and I did say it correctly. I said shipload. I did say shipload, but he buys a whole, whole bunch of, of rocks for a penny each or so. He gets these rocks for like a penny each. And he gets the hay from some guy who, the straw, from some guy for free. But he's got to, the, the, the money's put into the box. He's got to come up with a great way of marketing a pet rock. And so he comes up with the box, and the box has got a little money into it because it's got air holes. You've got to have air holes for a, for a pet rock, right? And he puts together a 32-page instructional manual on how to take care of your pet rock. <laughs> 1.5 million people bought the pet rock at $6 a piece. Overnight, he's a millionaire. The company goes out of business in February. Why? Because it's stupid. <laughs> right? I mean, let's just face People kind of, and actually, if you read later on, you go to Wikipedia or whatever, you read about this guy. He, he actually says, there's been so many complaints towards me about this that I almost wish I'd never done it. Almost. He's a million dollars richer, or a couple million or whatever. But he, he says, I almost wish I'd never had done it. Now, you might think, 
you know, are, are we that stupid? Yeah, we are. In fact, it just went live September 3rd this year for the first time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you can rebuy the Pet Rock. Somehow, people who are of that age now had so much fun with theirs as a kid that they want to give it to their kids as a gift. It has just been sold off. This guy's laughing his way to the bank, no doubt about it. Now, free market society. What happens here? You realize that a pet rock is a dumb idea. And you do something crazy as a consumer. What do you do? You don't buy it. How do you make the commercialization of Christmas decrease? Don't buy it. That's it. Don't complain about a free market society doing what it's supposed to do. And that's market to your demands. We're drinking the Kool-Aid here. They're just providing it. So we can rip on the stores and rip on the commercials. I remember the first time I saw the Lexus commercial. I must have been in high school. And and the big bow on top of the Lexus. And I'm thinking, who gives cars for Christmas? Right? But it must work. Because they still have the same big bow on the, on the Lexus. Is it still Lexus, right? Yeah, the last one I got wasn't a Lexus, so I, I don't remember. But So what's the issue here? The issue is self-controlled Christmas living. That's the issue. The actual issue is not consumerism. The actual issue is our problem as consumers. It's fine to be a consumer. It's a good thing. In a free market society, it doesn't work if you don't. But are you going to be self-controlled about it? Now. I'm going to give you two competing values here, so hang with me from Scripture, two competing values. Number one, Christians should be, because of the party like it's 1999 relationship we have with Christmas, as well as our nature, and I'm going to show you here in a couple of verses, uh, why, or, or in 2 Corinthians 9, why it's so important. If we truly understand the gospel, what that does to us is makes us generous. Paul says this, and he's speaking about giving money to the poor, but I think it goes, it could certainly go along when we host a party, have Christmas, there's generosity. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, will also reap generously. Each, uh, wh- excuse me, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever uh, sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in, in your heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all a grace, or God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he scattered his, brought his gifts to the poor, he is in righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of uh, your righteousness, you'll be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Uh, this, is the, this is the balance here. You've got to be generous. I think that's a beautiful thing. But not generosity without, you know, any end to it. That's ridiculousness. And that leads to where you need to think about self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And, and these days, you kept uh, invaders out by your walls. And if the walls were down, well, just, there's no self-control. It's just the, the animals get out and the people get in that you don't want in. And that's what happens if you don't have any self-control. Um, let me read this one first. And, and I think this is really, really helpful. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, uh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What I love about Titus chapter 2 is this. What he says here is, what are you supposed to do? Say no to ungodliness. Why? Just because. No. No, that's behavior modification. That's not the gospel. No to ungodliness. Why? He, 
He sandwiches it between this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The message of the gospel that Christ has come to, the, come to earth to save your neck from the penalty and power of sin. It's awesome. And then he ends it by talking about while we're waiting for this blessed hope for Jesus to come back. That, those two bookends, make us live now in self-control. Whew, that's beautiful. That's how you do, that's how you pull the gospel through Christmas. That's how you pull it through generosity. Now, my friend Eric Mason likes to say it this way. He says, um, think of any, any passion you have. Passions in and of themselves are not bad things. Generosity should be a passion of yours. That's fine. But it's like taking a dog for a walk. Or thinking more like a puppy dog. You got the puppy dog, you got him on a leash, right? Come on, he's kind of going everywhere, you know. Run. I don't know why the dog would make that noise. But they're, they're going everywhere. And you get that dog on a leash. When you take your passions for a walk, they need to be on a leash. Because if you take them off the leash, the dog just runs everywhere. That's what's going on here. Christmas is a great time, great time, to party like it's 1999 and to take your generosity puppy dog for a walk, but keep it on a leash. And if you don't keep it on a leash, you are the one that is creating the consumerism on the other side. Second thing. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me tell you that. I think this is beautiful. It's a little bit different genre, but let me explain it. It'll make sense. Uh, If you get a chance, go to, what is it, TED? You know, the place where you can listen to those business people talk. This is a great talk by a guy by the name of Clay Shirky. If your name's Clay Shirky, you're just cool to begin with, all right? So Clay talks, and Clay is kind of a total hipster. Uh, You know, the bald head thing and the hipster clothes and the whole thing. But he's talking here about the internet. And he says that, Everybody talks about, oh my gosh, there's just so much information. Oh, I'm just getting bombarded all the time. Information, 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 information. What do I do about it? And he says, it's not information overload. It's filter failure that's our problem. In other words, ever since Gutenberg invented the printing press, we've had a problem with too much information. I can't read all the books that were printed in the Library of Congress 100 years ago. So there was too much information then. But it wasn't at my fingertips then. Now it is. So the problem is filter failure. As you're doing Christmas, filter. That's the the concept. Now, with that said, let's uh, shift gears here a little bit and uh, talk about something for maybe a little different way. Think about this just for a second. (laughs) Our culture that um, if you do a study in American on on non-Christmas and non-Easter, uh, 17% of Minnesotans are in a church, any kind of church. Uh, so that would be very out there, churches. In any, but, and if you count them all, it's 70% of people in any given Sunday are in a church. That would mean 83%. Do you like how fast I did that? 83%. Are not. Okay? So predominantly the culture is not Christian or not seeking after the ways of God. Predominantly. I mean, majority. And on Christmas time, our entire culture stops, takes basically a month, and celebrates the gift or the, the, the gift of Jesus Christ to us. Could this possibly be a good thing for us? I'm not saying it's all said in the right way, but man, maybe, maybe we ought to ride this pony a little bit. You know what I'm saying? This might give us a little bit of an advantage. The, the, the people who are opposed to Christianity celebrate Christmas. Now, that's interesting. And if you stop and think about it for a second, this might be a good thing for us. Jesus talks about this, this whole concept, where he says, um, they come up to him, and he says, Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop, because they weren't, they, he was not one of us. And Jesus says this, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name uh, because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. So Jesus is saying, listen, if they're not against you, they're, they're, they're actually adding to your cause. Is there a way you could use some of the commercialization and all the five aspects of Christmas to further the gospel message? Maybe. 
Now, you might be thinking, that, that verse, that doesn't even make sense. Eh, it seems like you're kind of, it's certainly not talking about Christmas here. Right. Let me talk to you about a specific passage yet. Again, not talking about Christmas per se, but definitely going after the concept of using culture for the advantage of spreading the gospel. Paul, in his missionary journeys, is in a city called Athens. Same city of Athens that is today. He's there. He got there kind of happenstance. He wasn't even trying to get there. He's going there. He's waiting for other people. This passage says in Acts chapter 17, uh, he says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. That word greatly distressed, it's not a good translation. It just means like almost sick to his stomach. He was furious over something. What was it? To see that the city was full of idols. So as he wanders around Athens, every now and then there's another idol to another god and another idol to another god. He sees it all over. And how does he feel? He feels sick to his stomach. He goes around, he even sees an idol that says, to an unknown God. There's a big shrine, to the unknown God. Now, the reason you created a shrine to an unknown God was to cover your hind end in case you'd forgotten any of the gods. Okay, you don't know about this God, but we're going to make, okay, we, we didn't know of you, but here's your shrine just in case. That's Acts 17, verse 16. So as he's going about, he's sickened by this stuff. Now, in a few short verses later, you skip down to verse 22, he gets an opportunity to speak to a group of people who know absolutely nothing about Christianity. And the first thing he says to him is this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He congratulates them for their spirituality. Now that's interesting. And later he goes on in that passage to say, You know, I wandered around, I saw this unknown God. You, you did forget one, the only one. Let me tell you about the only God, the creator, the one who says, he goes on, he starts talking about Jesus. Paul uses the culture and, you know, he just shakes what his mama gave him. He's taking the culture and saying, we are already doing this. I'm going to use that for the advantage to tell you about Jesus. I'm gonna, you're going to hang the pitch on the outside of the plate. I'm going to hit it to right field. That's what he's saying. I think we have a tremendous opportunity here because our culture stops everything for about a month and celebrates Christmas. Last thing, as we close, how do you pull the gospel through this thing in your own life? One of the things is there's a huge lie with commercialism, right? Commercialism and materialism. Materialism gives you the lie, actually with a thing called natural materialism, actually points to all that exists is the things on that are material, and therefore, I must get my happiness from it. That is called natural materialism, all right? So materialism is, is actually a lie, because we believe there's more than that, that there is a God, that Christ is the Son of God, that He's the one who came to save our next. If we repent and follow Him, He's the one who fills us up in ways stuff can't. The, the lie is stuff equals love or stuff equals happiness. Stuff does not equal love. I got something for you. You might want to write this down. Love equals love. Stuff does not equal love. Equally important to write down. Stuff equals stuff. Nothing wrong with stuff. I like stuff. Doesn't equal love. Doesn't equal happiness. It's very important. Now, before you get off here thinking I'm going to go all anti-wealth and all that, not at all, not at all. I'm a big believer in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul is speaking to the wealthy people. He's telling Timothy to tell the people who have wealth not to use their wealth in such a way that it, and he says, uh, tell those who are wealthy not to put their hope in wealth. Why? Because it's uncertain, he says in 1 Timothy 6. But instead, tell them to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment that they should be rich in good deeds and giving and be generous and all those kind of things. But nothing wrong with being wealthy. Be wealthy. Just don't put any hope into it. And don't think it buys you love because it doesn't. Not at all. It buys you illusion of love and it buys you illusion of happiness. He who dies with the most toys dies. Who cares? There's nothing wrong with material stuff. I'm not anti-material. It's just stuff. 
Jesus is trying to teach on this, and, and somebody comes to him, and he's angry because there's an estate problem with, with, with what's going on. And, and he says, he yells at Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's his big problem. You've got five minutes with Jesus, and what do you bring up? The estate problem you have. Right? I'm just glad that poor dude didn't get his name. He's lamed as someone. It's not like Bob said. And he says, man, who pointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, Jesus had possessions. And Jesus had money. He talks about them, the people that supported the ministry. He had money. It's not evil. It just is. When it becomes evil, though, is when it becomes something that you say, I must have this in order to fill in the blank, be happy, satisfied, or whatever. No, it's not that. It's to be enjoyed, but never to be worshipped. Put it in the right order. God first. Put Christ there. Why? Because he's a killjoy? No, because he wants maximum joy for you. Put him in the right place. And then things fall together. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it this way, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where your thieves do not break in and steal. I'm trying to tell you, I want to give you maximum pleasure. And that is by following Christ. And stuff is stuff. For where your treasure is, there's your, that's exactly where your heart's going to be. Now, keep going through here. If you keep walking in Matthew chapter 6, people often quote this verse out of context. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And people often use this to talk about lust, sexual lust. Now, I think there's a principle here for sexual lust, but I know that's not what Jesus is talking about. Why? Look at the next thing. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote it to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve what? Both God and money. You cannot, there's room in your heart for one God. What's your God? And if you have a King James Bible, and I know none of you do, but you might have an electronic device, you can click on the King James Version here. Matthew 6, it actually says, the second sentence says, if your eyes are, and it uses the word single. If your eyes are single. In other words, if you have single-minded eyes, I have an eye. And stuff is good, but the dead center of my eyes, I'm, I'm a hedonist, man. I want the maximum pleasure I can get, and that's found in God. And everything else is just to be enjoyed, but God is to be worshipped. If your eye is single, then your heart will be full of light, and everything else will take its place. And all the things of Christmas will follow if Christ is paramount. So let me close by asking you a question as I invite the worship team up to close us this morning. How do you, how do you apply it? What do you, what do you do? And I just want to encourage you. This whole commercialism thing, it's a major problem. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. It's a, it's a trapping. It can rob you of your Christmas joy. And I, I want to ask you, will you fight the cynicism as well as the commercialism that comes with Christmas in America and about just being filled, being single-minded, having an eye that's single towards Jesus? Let's pray together.